Hello and welcome back. I'm so excited to be here for season three of Well Not Perfect. We have so many amazing guests lined up this season and I can't wait for you to meet them all. In this first episode, I wanna introduce you to the amazing Allison Herman. Allison is the Director of Education at Hope for the Day. Hope for the Day is an incredible Chicago-based nonprofit whose mission is to empower the conversations on proactive suicide prevention and mental health education. This episode comes at the perfect time because May is Mental Health Awareness Month and May 19th is the second annual Mental Health Action Day. This is a time to educate, provide support, and empower the world to move from awareness to action for mental health. Through all the conversations, I was deeply inspired to learn more about the ways that Allison and Hope for the Day are taking action each and every day. Their work is making a huge impact and helping people truly know that it is okay to not be okay a message they've trademarked and spread across the world. It's okay not to be okay is something that was said by our founder. And it's just, it's letting people know that it is because I feel like a lot of people feel a lot of shame or they feel like something's wrong with them. And just starting that conversation, it's a good conversation starter, but it's also a good reminder. In today's episode, you will learn the ins and outs of the essential work Hope for the Day is doing and how you can be a part of the efforts to break the stigma and take action for mental health. Be sure to stay tuned at the end of the episode for more on the Worldwide Mental Health Action Day happening on May 19th. Welcome to another episode of Well, Not Perfect. So Allison, one of my first questions is if you can just introduce a little bit the organization that you're working for and how you got into it. Yeah, so I'm the director of education here at Hope for the Day. Hope for the Day is a 501c3. We're a nonprofit and we are also a uh, mental health education and suicide prevention organization. And we do proactive suicide education. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But yeah, I see. I So I did 11 years in advertising before I switched over to nonprofit. And Hope for the Day actually came into my at a, one of my ad agencies back in the day in like 2017 or 18 and did a presentation in our like town hall space. And then I loved it because I was like, this is very different to how people were talking about mental health and suicide prevention. So that's cool. And then I just started volunteering. So I started volunteering in 2018, 2019, uh, took mental health first aid through that organization as well. And then I just kept tabling and events and like showing up to things and getting involved. Um, I remember going to Sip of Hope pre-pandemic, which is our coffee shop in Logan Square. And I did all of that. And eventually uh, I, so we have these resource cards that say it's okay not to be okay. And then have hotlines on the back. And I came up to the person who was doing the program previously. And I was like, hey, so I really want to make one of these cards that are strictly LGBT friendly because I'm LGBT plus. And I, and they were like, great, do you want to do consulting? And so I started consulting on that program. We eventually made an, an entire education program instead of just a card. Uh, Cause they, they're very big into, over the day is very big into, if there's an idea and it's good, let's, let's do it. It doesn't matter where it came from. And then I was a consultant for a while during the pandemic. And then in 2021, uh, the previous director of education stepped down and they asked me if I was interested in the job. And that's kind of how I got here. I like to the, the short story of that is I kept pushing until they eventually agreed to pay me is kind of how I describe that. So I've been around for a little bit and it's been cool because 
coming through a volunteer experience into a nonprofit, I feel is like, like a wonderful way to get to know your org. So that's a little bit about how I got in. That's great. And for you to have the taste of that and then keep moving up, it means that it really is a genuine good effort that they put out there. And the mission that they have is really powerful because as a volunteer, you could stop there, but you decided to go that extra mile and become employed and make sure that you're driving that message home. The, the slogan that you have, and I hate to even say slogans. I feel like it's way more than a slogan is it's okay to not be okay. And I'm seeing that in a lot of places and I've seen it recently, which tells me that you guys have been manifesting that years and years and years until it's really grown into that public eye. Tell us more about that. Yeah, it's okay not to be okay is something that was said by our founder after I believe he lost like over a dozen people in his life to suicide. And it's just a simple, relatable thing. When I'm at tables, often a lot of people walk by our table and we have a banner that says like, it's okay not to be okay. And that will be the moment that a lot of people just stop and look and like reflect on it and be like, it is okay not to be okay. And it's just, it's letting people know that it is because I feel like a lot of people feel a lot of shame or they feel like something's wrong with them. And just starting that conversation, uh, it's a good conversation starter, but it's also a good reminder. We have wristbands that say it's okay not to be okay on them. And even that I feel like is like a really cool reminder because Hope for the Day started in Chicago music spaces and we would just hand out wristbands to people and even when I've been in music spaces by myself I bring a couple wristbands with me because just seeing that somebody's not having a great time and just letting them have that reminder is just really cool so I think it's a very relatable statement yeah so tell us about how you started up in the Chicago music scene so I did not but hope for the day did so we saw an opportunity back in 2011 to talk about mental health in a different way with a different audience. And we actually did a lot of work on Warp Tour. Again, this is before my time, but in 2011, I believe we toured Warp Tour, if I'm remembering those dates correctly. And it was an opportunity to like talk to a lot of pop pop punk kids and people that were just like going to a place to feel like they had a community and often weren't always in the best headspace when they were going to a space. So. I also really like Hope for the Day because we all look like this. So if if you're listening on the podcast, I have a bunch of tattoos. And it's a different type of discussion about mental health um, because we're pretty real and validating and warm. So it's we're peer-led clinically backed. So that means we're using all of that lived experience. And then I have a clinical oversight committee that's like, hey, adjust some of this. Let's figure out some of that. But it's a different approach. And when we went into festivals, we found that not a lot of people were having this discussion with people because a lot of people go to concerts to feel community, or maybe that's the biggest thing that they're doing this month that they're super excited about. And it was a really cool place to have this conversation and tell people like, Hey, everything's okay. If you need to talk about stuff, come over, get some resources. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. How have you seen your resources be utilized by people like that? Yeah. It's super cool. Uh, I love tabling. I mean, I started at Hope for the Day tabling and it's just a very unique experience where you get to have people share what they want to share and kind of walk away. At Lollapalooza, we did fake uh, tattoos. We had like, it's okay not to be okay. And it was like a barbed wire heart. And people were like putting it on their necks and on their arms or wherever they wanted to put it. But it was just a really lovely experience to watch people start to open up even if it's just to a stranger for five minutes even if it's realizing that like those resources they can take with them I 
often have people come up and then come up later and be like, I'm going to take like 10 of these for my friends. I'm like, that's fine. We also have a lot of resources that get put into local businesses. So I went into a place in Boys Town or Norhalstead, just depending on which, which uh, thing you say, and just had resource cards at the front of a bar. Or we have salons reaching out to us being like, hey, people really are open and share with us. Can we put some of our resource, your resource cards in our space? Same thing with schools and high schools and counseling centers, just like just something easy that people can pick up on the way out because it's, it's like a little four by four card. And it's, it's pretty easy to put in any bag or like in your back pocket. And I really enjoyed it because it's the best way to, if someone's in a crisis and really needs a hotline, you don't have to like remember it or figure out what to do next. You just have a card that you can get all the information at once. So it's been, it's been really cool to watch that circulate. Yeah, absolutely. And the power of a message, I think that's really powerful to try to hone in on one message that you're trying to drive really strong and really clear. And then when it has so much emotion and power behind it, I think that's when people can really understand that you are authentic and you have a lot of intentionality because that's how simply be arrived to its name. The idea of creating a space that is calm and tranquil and has a lot of meditation and some yoga behind it or a wellness model behind it, which is finding a space in counseling to simply be yourself and not trying to be someone else that you have been told you're supposed to be. So the language I think is really powerful and it's so clear on the intentions. And when I think we're trying to get really clear on how to help people, then a clear message is really powerful. And I imagine people listening today might be interested in how they're going to take their vision or how they're going to take their dreams to help people and kind of package it in a way that they can go and find a niche in their world and deliver that message. And you guys have done such a great job. That's why we wanted to have you on the show because we felt like messaging and branding and mental health is so important And if it's not done strong, then a good message can get lost. There's a lot of good messages out there. And I think that you guys are doing a really good job with that message and people can get behind it. One of the parts that I know you guys are participating in to get your message out there is mental health action day, which is this year, 2022, May 19th. And we're participating in it as well. What are some of the important ways that your organization is going to take action towards mental health when that day comes? Yeah, so we take action every day, but May and September are busiest months uh, for mental health education. So we do peer-led, clinically-backed educational programs around what is, what's baseline behavior, what's escalation look like, what is the crisis stage? Um, Why are traditional resources incredibly reactive and how do we switch that? Are you taking care of yourself? Um, How do you take care of someone else? What does a crisis response look like? And May is super busy because a lot of people want to have all that information uh, to their teams in their workplace, maybe to their community center, because people are thinking about mental health and um, suicide prevention. So I would like to say that we are certainly doing something because May is super busy, but we do something every day. Um, I do educations at least once or twice a week, all year round. So it's not so much the specific days, but it's, it's 
all the time. And I think that's why Hope for the Day is so successful because we certainly have surges and pinpoint like campaigns and things that have conversations specific, at specific moments. Um, but our education is always happening and is always available for people to take. Yeah, because what your guys' whole mission and vision is to ensure that you're taking action and reducing suicide. And that's really powerful. Are there other aspects of mental health that you guys aim to do? You do aim to reduce suicide, obviously increase awareness. What else can we kind of expect from hope for the day? Yeah. So we, we like to say that everybody's very aware that mental health is a thing, but in order to do something about it, you have to foster those spaces in your community. So having conversations, changing the the experience and the narrative in community spaces is very hard because often we talk about stigma a lot in our presentations where those are those social and cultural factors that are boxing you in and making you feel like you can't be yourself. And we try to talk about how to break down stigma. So one of the big things that we discuss is like letting people know what stigma is, actually uh, using tangible things to support someone. Or even on our website, we have how to ask for help. Cause I feel like that's a huge part of this conversation that doesn't get said very often. So we have a lot of things centered around how to be supportive. Uh, it can be little things like using the right language. Um, we use complete suicide instead of commit. Um, that's a pretty normal standard at this point, but it's still something that stigmatizes the experience. And uh, you don't commit a heart attack. You have a heart attack and it's when you're having a conversation about mental health, it's the same as having a conversation about a medical conversation. So we're very much trying to normalize these discussions and practice. Uh, we don't record any of our educations because we want people to practice those conversations and practice getting used to sharing and being open. One of my other tips that I love telling people is asking what instead of why. Because when you ask why, like, why are you sad or why do you feel this way? It feels judgy, even though it's probably really well intended instead of asking like, what can I do? What happened before this? What do you need? Um, and just doing those little tweaks to language and having an open conversation. Some of the other things we do are we go into workplaces. Uh, we have specific programming that we work with HR staff and see what we can do in a workplace, especially now where Often a lot of people are really stressed out or have really high uh, workloads because of the pandemic or um, I know right now there's a lot of shortages. So we try to work with people to see what we can do. Um, we also have specialized intersection programming. So when we started doing uh, the programs called Things We Don't Say, and that's our base program. And when we started doing that, people are like, this is great. This is awesome. I love this. And this is all the things that we already talked about earlier. But then people started coming to us and being like, hey, what if I'm a military person? I have specific things I need to think about. I could lose my clearance. I have a really hard time finding a safe space to open up and not lose a bunch of things. Same thing for our LGBT population. Uh, we had a lot of people who were like, yeah, I can't just go to any therapist. They don't understand my conversations and I'm tired of educating other therapists. So what we did is in 2019, we made Project Red Team. Um, and Project Red Team is for military first responders and their families. So it's having conversations about, hey, if you are a first responder or if you are military or if you're a veteran, how do you figure out how to get those resources? Because it's just different, different needs for different community spaces. And then in July of 2021, I believe, we launched Identity and Orientation, which is our LGBT conversation which is again, looking at those specific things that those intersections need and kind of magnifying those specific things. So 
we have questions to ask your therapist if you're LGBT plus to make sure that your therapist is the right therapist for you. And also those resource cards that I mentioned earlier are specific. So all of the resources on the back of the LGBT resource card are LGBT friendly, LGBT competent, and they know when you're having a conversation, they know who you are, they know what you're talking about. Uh, same thing with the military first responder is that it's all resources that are actually applicable to your VA, veteran, non-VA, like whatever you need, it's there. Um, and I find that that's really helpful. So it's really addressing those specific stigmas and those specific intersections and finding a way to actually work with people and help them because when you're in a space and you don't feel awesome, you don't want to do all that legwork. So we're happy to do that for you. Yeah, absolutely. Our uh, Take Action Day, all of our donations are going to go to the Lake County Veteran and Family Services Foundation in Lake County here because it provides services not just to the veteran, but to the families, even if the veteran's not engaged. So it really kind of spreads its kind of wings into the family system without it requiring the veteran and the VA to be the leader of that. So I'd look forward to maybe seeing those cards and us being able to give them out at our walk because we'll have a large attendance and your message is exactly what we are intending to do. And it kind of reminds me of the power of connection and networking where I don't need to create that card. You have that card and that card can come to our take action walk and take action is what connected us. And there's all of these ways to network and connect. And what it requires is, Hey, get on the phone, call someone, connect, you know, get, you know, get to know that organization or that person. So as we're kind of talking about what inspires nonprofits, what inspires pro mental health conversations or private practices like ours, that what is inspiring is the ability to connect and grow just by reaching out and saying, Hey, can we, can we talk? Can we connect? What can we do together? And that's really how I've seen mental health grow and improve. And my question to you is how have you seen mental health kind of open its doors and, um, destigmatize in the, in the, in the public eye, not necessarily destigmatize like one person's feelings, but on that more macro level, what are you seeing? Yeah. Um, so before we move on, I think something I should mention, when we talk about that connection is our military first responder presentation and our, or platform and our identity and orientation platform are taught by the people in that community. We try to make it very peer led. So you either have an incredibly informed ally who like passed all the tests to like really know what they're talking about, or you have someone in those communities um, teaching those. So that's a huge connection piece. Cause when you're speaking, like when I'm speaking to another LGBT person, they get it and I don't have to like explain stuff or worry if they're going to mess it up. And the same thing is true for our military conversations. So I love that. But yeah, what I'm seeing is that for better or worse, uh, the pandemic has done a lot of door opening. It's exposed a lot of inequality that people, I think a lot of people were aware of, but now it's like very much in your face. Um, and it also exposed people to a lot of stress. I, when I was speaking to people during the pandemic, because uh, we moved all of our educations online onto Zoom, and it, it's wonderful because now I have two different ways to reach people. I can either do it in person or on Zoom. And a lot of people were like, I've never experienced anything like this. My family's never experienced anything like this. Whether or not you've had panic attacks before or had a mental health experience before, people were starting to have it just by the sheer amount of pressure and stress and the political situation and just a lot of isolation that really harbors just a lot of perfect storm experiences for mental health. So 
I think people are getting a lot more comfortable with having the beginning of that discussion, even if they're not all the way into, let's talk about um, suicide prevention, but they are interested in being like, yeah, I've had a really tough time existing <laughs> as a person. Or when I talk about uh, physical examples of how your mental health will sometimes manifest, like, do you really have really bad stomach issues or do you have anxiety? Are you having a tough time getting through your day? Or are you just fatigued from just being tired and existing? Uh, and I think people are more open to having those conversations. It's different because, again, that intersection approach that we take is certain people are still very much trying to get to a place where they can even talk about it. But I think the pandemic opened up a space where you can start having conversations in a way that at least people are much more open to than they were when we started. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me too, how much we are kind of looking at subgroups of people where we can speak to their unique individual needs. And you call that the intersection. And that's really powerful for you guys to know where your passion and values land, because if it's on LGBTQIA plus, and then it's also on first responders, then you're going to create really great content and curriculum around that. And so my takeaway, when you share that is that you don't need to be an expert in everything. You can find experts. You can find people who have just lived it and then let them speak to their community. And I think that's powerful to not try to put on the hat that doesn't belong to you and try to speak to that group that doesn't tend to work. So for us, we've done psychoeducation and counseling support for athletes, because that's um, where I come from. And we've got a team here of therapists who are former college athletes, and we can speak to that. And we also have a diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, program. And it's a person of color who was, you know, willing to do the extra certification. So not only is she living in the community, but she's also getting the training and certificate to know the nuances of how to assess a culture and how to focus and become aware of unconscious bias and all these things. So it's not when you're, when you're building something or you want to build something, then it's not about you being the expert. It's about you finding the people who have the message and can be the experts. That's another takeaway is don't try to do it all. Um, get clear on what you want and ask for help and ask people to join you. But you know, you can have a great idea and a great vision and just not be the one who has to execute it. And that's what I hear you guys do. Yeah. And I mean, I mentioned the two programs that we currently have intersections in. They both have pretty high suicide rates. So that's part of the reason we went in those directions. LGBT plus people are four to six times more likely to attempt suicide than their straight peers. And I think a lot of us know the stat of military first responders is 22 to 30 active duty or veterans of the military die by suicide each day. So these are really important things to think about when you have those discussions. But also, yeah, we've had people from our Hope for the Day community come to us and say, we need these things. One of the things I'm very proud of is when we make new things, we get focus groups from people with lived experience. Um, so usually I pair a clinician and then I pair a bunch of community members and I put people in a focus group with that clinician so that they can help me out with anything that's outside of peer support. And we just talk about stuff. I ask questions. I'm like, all right, so what do we need here? What's missing? And that makes a, better, a much better program because I think the mentality was in like the 90s and 2000s that if you want it, make it. And there wasn't a lot of consideration about the community space and what the gaps were. 
so I think that that's been really helpful. And I learned that from an organizer in Chicago who was like, you got to ask people what they need, because if you try to make something for someone, one, they may not come to your thing because it's not what they actually want. And two, you're assuming a lot by not asking that question. Um, so when we made the LGBT uh, presentation and we did all those focus groups, one of the things that came up a lot is that you have to come out all the time. It's not just like one Disney Channel moment, and you're done. So those were things that I, even as an LGBT plus person, didn't realize uh, were things that people were working with every day. And it makes its way into our programming. Or when we were doing uh, research for our military first responder, the folks in the military were like, yeah, I'll lose my clearance. Or people who were um, police officers or in fire were like, yeah, if I call a suicide resource, I'm calling the next shift of people. Like those are my coworkers. Why would I want to open up to those people? Like we're working together. So it created a lot of interesting barriers, but also that's how we know what we need to do to work on those. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're creating a program and you're doing the focus group and then you're creating the content and then delivering it, if you get feedback, you tweak it. And that's powerful because when we, when we're talking about take action towards mental health, what we're talking about right now is more of a mid to macro level of take action, but there's a lot of people out there with really fantastic ideas. And so I want to speak to those people today and say, Hey, if you have an idea, that's all it takes to start something, make sure that you're doing it with integrity, make sure that you're doing it with curiosity and being humble, because there's always things that you might miss or errors you might have. And being humble for feedback is really important not trying to be perfect. I think obviously if we wait until everything's perfect, we'll never launch. Is there anything that you guys have learned recently that, you know, you took flight or tried, didn't quite work and you had to tweak, like what, what have you learned and what have you had to change? Let's see. So we actually today just launched the second year of our beer campaign. So we do this year it's uh, hops for the day. Uh, so we have a conversation with beer. Uh, we're basically, we are starting to have these difficult conversations where in breweries or in community spaces, people have a beer and maybe talk about things they wouldn't usually talk about, or that's something that they use to get rid of the pressure of their week. And often a lot of these conversations are had over a beer. So we have started these campaigns and something that happened last year that I thought was really interesting is that we got some pushback that people are like, hey, why are you mixing mental health and alcohol like that? That's not what people do in the nonprofit world. And we explained like, hey, we made an FAQ. We have an explanation this year of like why we're doing these things. We talk about how Hope for the Day has a harm reduction approach. Like we are not telling you not to drink your beer. We're telling you that like have a conversation, um, support Hope for the Day, maybe give some resources to people who might need them. So I welcome people to check out that campaign because I'm very proud of the way that it went because uh, we aren't always anticipating everybody's reactions, but then we make an FAQ that explains what's going on. We make it really easy for people to access our experiences that we're going for and why we're making something like this. So I feel like explaining what you're, why you're doing it and showing people where they can find more information is really helpful and being super open and transparent. Uh, we have had a lot of really good conversations as a leadership team this year of being like, lead with empathy, be super transparent. And people have been really into that because if you just launch something, you don't explain why you're doing it, who it's for and what your hope is for it, sometimes people might take the message the wrong way. So I really love being open and over communicating and telling people like why this is a great thing that we're doing. I would agree with you. I think 
when you're launching things out into the public, if you start with the why and you breadcrumb things, so it's kind of digestible information, it goes into some change management, which is kind of the organization psychology of things, which is how do you introduce something to prepare for change and also increase the likelihood that people will engage in it and participate in it because change is scary and new things people tend to kind of want to step back from and be a little bit more observant of and not engage in, but obviously you guys want quick engagement. And I love that you do that. I was thinking it's like sip for hope. Like if you did a wine shop or something, I'd be there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, sip of hope, which is our, our coffee shop that I mentioned earlier is really special because usually when you're connecting with someone, you're doing it over a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. And that's why sip of hope became a thing. We're like, wouldn't it be cool if there was a community space where everybody, all of our baristas are mental health first aid trained, and you can just be you and be in a space. And on top of it being a cool coffee shop, it also has a bunch of resources. So yeah, sip of hope is my favorite. And we are looking into like where people are having a lot of their mental health conversations because they don't have access to therapy or they um, have a lot of feelings about maybe that space isn't for them. Maybe they had a very bad experience and they don't want to do that. Um, So people sometimes reach for other opportunities and other things like that happens in sports, right? Where sometimes you're not going to therapy, but you're doing your runs. And that's kind of the way that you're doing mental health. And I think that reaching out to people and having those conversations and hope for the day is very good about meeting people where they are. We don't wait for people to come to us. We're like, hey, we're going to have a Chicago marathon team come talk about athletics and mental health. And it's, it's much more powerful and a lot more authentic. I would agree. Well, if, and when you guys do the athlete thing in the program level, let me know, cause we need so much of it. And the demand and the request is so high. And there's things that nonprofits can do that I think fill in a major gap in need. That's really powerful. And If I had two heads and four hands, I'd probably do something like that, but I don't. So I have to hold myself back, but there's a big passion for me to help athletes with mental health because that's how I came into the field in 2008, uh, 2009, I decided to come to commit my career and my passion to mental health. And it came out of my own struggles as an athlete, really trying to find a place to talk and find a place to get support when Back then the athletic departments were just not suited for that. And being a college student, I wasn't really able to access resources. Like I would have liked to, it just felt like there was a lot of barriers and through all of my years, I've always returned back to the athletes and, and I've always just been able to really speak to kind of what that unique experience is. So I value how you guys kind of have a certain position within a community and make sure that there's that experienced expert, if you will, who's there, even if it's not a therapist, it's powerful to hear from someone who is similar to you. And especially in a world where you feel like there's always that difference between you and the other people. And that's, that's why you can't reach out for help. It's nice for someone to be within your pod and say, Hey, you know, I've been there and this is, this is what I did. And I think that's my biggest takeaway for you guys is that you do content really well. And you make sure that it's done by experienced experts, not people who just have a degree behind their name. Yeah. I mean, I, I commend all the people who have letters behind their name, which I can never keep any of them straight. Uh, I should do a, should do an educational post, about what all the letters mean, because the first time I went into therapy, I have a friend who's a psychologist and I was like, Hey, 
I need you to explain what all these letters are as I'm going on psychology today and like doing my own research to figure out like, here's my insurance, here's how I figure this out. And it was a lot and it was hard. So I feel like making it easier for people is our, always our approach. Yeah. That, that makes me want to do one, the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist, because I have on Facebook moms groups, people asking for a psychologist and I'll reach out and ask them what they need. And then they'll tell me that it's for medication. And I said, Oh, then you need to search for psychiatry and that there is a difference. And I'd say that some older generations are less aware of the difference than younger generations. I think younger generations have taken an interest in that in high school and are really familiar with that. And they think it's really interesting, but then, you know, sometimes you, sometimes you need a psychologist and sometimes you don't. So if you're only looking for a psychologist, your search is going to be limited, but if you're looking for a therapist, then you can open up that scope and also talk about the training. What is a social worker trained in? What's a counselor trained in? What's a psychologist trained in? And the, you know, the vehicle kind of can all look the same, but the engine looks different is how I explain it to people. So there's a deep dive that would be really beneficial. I think in that education of why would you prefer a social worker or a counselor over the other, or a psychologist, you really need to see if you want some testing and some really strong diagnosing. So there's conversations that people unfortunately do not have access to information. Even if you look at WebMD, they're really not going to tell you the true difference. Yeah. And I also didn't know until I was in a lot of this work is people don't learn everything. So like the continuing credit experience for a lot of therapists and um, psychologists, like if you don't want to go into some of these intersectional discussions about people of color, about queer people, about military or about athletes, like you don't have to, like no one's forcing you to continue that education. So sometimes you have therapists who are stuck in what they learned originally, uh, which I think is really interesting because I think a lot of us assume that a therapist knows everything where they don't have the same sort of knowledge that maybe is out in the world and especially with types of therapies too, I've had a lot of friends be like, all right, I don't like talk therapy. What else is out there? I'm like, it's a great question. Here's a bunch of articles because it's again, very hard to be like, hey, I really like talk therapy, but I think I need EMDR or uh, DBT or all these things where people are like, I don't know what that is. And it's really hard to navigate it as a person who doesn't have all that knowledge. Um, so I've had to do that for some friends too um, and explain different types of therapy and why they work for different people. And I've done that because I've asked my own therapist a lot of questions. And I know that, again, not everybody is me. Not everybody wants all that knowledge, but I think it really helps to have a better experience. Yeah. I encourage people, they can find me on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. I'm pretty accessible and people can message me what they think that they want. And I can kind of work through it. The, the nice thing about if I can make a suggestion, maybe to listeners is if you can find a group practice that has five to 10 clinicians, you can call the front desk and just kind of like say what you need or what you think you need. And then that person on the phone can say, Oh, well, these two people check out their bios, check out the website. These two people would have that intersection for you. The rest will not. Sometimes it's easier to kind of start with a group and just say, Hey, do you do OCD specific treatment? And then they'll say, yeah, we have someone who does exposures. So then right there, you're having someone kind of narrow you down into a select the individual private practice people, you can read their bios and get to know them and call them and wait for the call back and stuff. But if you, 
it depends on, it's just like medical too. You know, you can call an allergy clinic that has got 10 people and say, Hey, who treats this allergy? Or you can go find an allergy specific person. So there's a way to do it all. But sometimes I'm like, if you really don't know where to start, you can just call a bigger group and then they can talk to you about your different options, but it's a challenge. I have people probably twice a day, reach out to me on Facebook. Maybe I've never heard from them since high school. And they'll say, Hey, I know you're a therapist and you know, my child is really struggling with um, separation anxiety. And, and sometimes I actually recommend occupational therapy. So I'll say, you know, sounds like a sensory thing. Why don't you check out OT on top of therapy? And, you know, sometimes it's really powerful to even be aware of something that you didn't even know could work. Like, Hey, if they're overstimulated, let's do OT. They're not verbal yet. Makes sense to go that route first and then go to talk when you're more verbal. There's all these little things that I wish was more, more, maybe that's like where the education lacks is like lacking, like education or awareness of like what the field is. Yeah. And one of the things we say when we're trying to tell people how to be supportive is to give information, but not diagnose someone trying to give them all the information they need that they don't have to do that research themselves instead of being like, that looks like ADHD. Cause that that's not a great starting point. Cause then you're searching for only that instead of being like, Hey, call a large network, ask if they have someone who helps with X, Y, and Z, because when you have symptoms, a lot of symptoms look like a lot of different things. And I'm not a clinician. A lot of the peer support people I work with are not clinicians. And sometimes the clinicians even get it wrong. So it's good yeah. to start somewhere. Absolutely. I mean, when we've worked with someone for two, three, four, five sessions after the fifth session, if we still can't tell the difference between depression, anxiety, and ADHD, then we'll send them to a psychologist who does psychology testing. And then the psychologist will ask us, what do you want to rule in? What do you want to rule out? And we'll say, we want to rule in or rule out these three diagnoses. And of course, if you pick up on anything else, And then the psychologist will spend a couple of hours doing that testing so that the whole battery of testing can take three days and that could be full days. You know, those would be clinics like Cleveland or Texas called Menninger. There's places where you can go and get a three-day full battery. You know, if you're ruling everything in or out from pervasive schizophrenia to anxiety to trauma, but if in, let's say, for example, in Chicago land, if you see a therapist and they're saying, you know, you're scoring on anxiety, depression, and ADHD, but what's primary, what's secondary, what's playing off of each other. Would you like to see a psychologist who can do a battery of tests and get us more qualitative or quantitative data? And if the answer is yes, then unfortunately it is a bit of a wait list, but then you come out with a lot of information and then a good treatment plan and things like that. So you don't need to go to a therapist and know what your diagnosis is. And that therapist can be truthful with you and say, Hey, these are, these are the three. And does that matter to you? Do you want those labels? Do you want that? Or do you just want to come at this with CBT and see if you get symptom reduction? So I'd say, look for a therapist who's really transparent with you and very truthful and doesn't act like they've got sort of the solution to everything that would make me concerned. Yeah. And I tell people too, like, hey, if you call NAMI helpline or uh, call a lot of these services that are happy to walk you through all those experiences, that's really helpful. But also the waitlist conversation, I say, I think very important to have because it's happening all over the place. There's just not enough therapists to keep up with the demand that COVID has introduced into the world. And a lot of therapists burnt out. So they, it's really hard for everyone. 
Um, there's a lot of good support groups. I tell people if you have a community center and a support group that's specific to your intersection or even there's a lot of therapy spaces that have support groups attached, those are really helpful um, as like a band-aid until you can get into treatment and have your own therapist or again, doing advocacy work or being in a space like Hope for the Day and just having people talking about mental health in a safe way, um, I think is a really good place because we're not therapy, but we are happy to give you as many resources as you can to get where you want to go. So if that's you finding support for someone else in your life or finding support for yourself and being like, oh yeah, I don't do a lot of self-care practices. I welcome people to take an education, learn more information. We have a part two education, which I really love where it's, uh, it's things we don't say part two and it's taking all of the practical things that we talked about in part one and practicing them. So we talk about active listening. We practice active listening. We talk about a crisis experience. We practice a crisis experience without the stress of an actual crisis experience where you feel like someone's life is literally on the line. And we find that even by just walking through some of those experiences in a, a safe environment, it helps people really start to understand how they can do a lot of this work in their own space, even if they're not in a therapist's office. Because my clinical oversight committee is always, we're always doing education, we're not doing therapy, but we're happy to find a space to point you to. Our logo is a compass. Uh, so it we point people to the right place that they probably could go. But yeah, I just want to highlight that not everybody has access to therapy right now. So all the amazing things that we're talking about are great if you can get them, but I want to be super transparent and know that it's not very easy right now. And there are a lot of other options. Brave Space Alliance actually has a lot of really good LGBT specific support groups, which I think are really cool. And a lot of community centers like that or in other areas have really good virtual support groups as well, where you can just pop on and be with people that understand. Because often getting support from people who just get it is really valuable, even if you're not in therapy yet. Yeah. The Insight Timer is an app that has good meditations and there's free meditations, there's free courses, there's paid for courses, and they also have support groups in there. So I've joined different support groups in there just to make sure that I'm practicing whatever I recommend. I want to make sure it's good stuff. And I can say the insights timer support groups have been really helpful for me because throughout the day, people are chatting each other and you get push notifications and you can see just really helpful, kind comments going back and forth from people who are um, going through stuff and you can turn the push notifications off, but I actually really enjoyed this idea that there was a group out in the world, literally the world that were supporting one another. And I was seeing it on my phone and it made me feel connected to a community, even when it was popping on my phone. And for me to go in almost anonymous and be able to kind of post and have that experience and have that support, I found it to be really powerful and very low entry mental health stuff. It didn't overwhelm me or intimidate me. I think sometimes a group a support group sounds intimidating, but in this digital age, there's great opportunities to join them. So if I can also just plug insight timer, um, that app has been my favorite for a couple of years now, actually. And it's, it's huge. Now I felt like I was one of those few founders that like was in it when it first started. And then every time I see what's going on and it's just incredible what they have. And I'm like, they are sourcing their material so well, and so much of it is free, which I think is the way to get people in right to low barriers to access. And then if they want more than giving them that option. Yeah. And that's one of the things I like about hope for the day. Like we give away hotlines and resources and information for free. 
we do also have a paid experience too. Like I don't want Coca-Cola to get things for free because it's it's very much the Robin Hood experience of making sure people get what they have access to. But like when we go to festivals, when we go to community events, like we're handing out resources for free. We're having those conversations for free. Um, and sometimes that's all it takes. In the summer, we're gonna be launching an e-learning platform that will also be low barrier. And I'm just very excited to like give that to people because uh, I think that some of this stuff is just so inaccessible to so many different communities. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we always want to end on a really positive note and I'm wondering what has been the biggest win for you guys so far this year? I would say, I think our ability to be in the online space in a very helpful way, because if you go to pure purevention.org, um, all of our free online accessible Zooms that are live are up there and they're usually on Saturdays or Wednesdays or Sundays. Um, we have educations that you can sign up for free and go in there. And also we have in-persons again. So it's just, I love the ability to shift back and forth and have those experiences. Also hope for the day as an organization, you can go to our website on hftv.org and on the first page, there's like a blog section. And in there, you can see what our plan is for 2022. And I really love, we've been doing um, diversity training. We talk about racism in healthcare. We talk about inequality. We, every person in hope for the day goes through an orientation now where you go through military 101, you go through LGBT basics. So we're really practicing what we say we're doing, which not to say that we weren't doing that earlier, but there's actually an emphasis on making sure that everybody gets that education. And I think for this year, the win has been that e-learning platform that I'm really excited about that's not real yet, but it's so close. And then uh, Things We Don't Say Part 2 has been really cool. That launched in February and people have been very excited about it because you have people who have already engaged with Hope for the Day and then are coming back to get more information. And I love teaching those classes because those people really want to be there. Because when you're doing part one, sometimes you have people who are like, what's this all about? What's going on? But part two, you have people who are like, I'm in it. I'm ready. Let's do it. So I think for the education department, that's been really cool. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for coming on the show. And this is another episode of Well, Not Perfect. May is Mental Health Awareness Month and May 19th is the second annual Mental Health Action Day. I want to share with you a little of the history behind the event and ways that you can get involved. Last year in 2021, a coalition of more than 1,400 nonprofits, brands, government agencies, and influential leaders from 32 countries came together to shift our mental health culture from awareness to action on the first Mental Health Action Day. This initiative, powered by MTV Entertainment, began in the wake of COVID-19, where millions of people uncovered new mental health conditions and millions more had their existing challenges exacerbated. There was a clear need to take action and support those in our community and identify opportunities to build long-term resiliency. Together, we are working to spread the message that we can take action to improve our mental health, just like our physical health. The Mental Health Action Network has reached far and wide with over a billion views and public engagements, and they're only just getting started. In 2022, we'll do even more together to drive our culture from awareness to action on mental health. This year's theme of connection comes at a time when people of all ages continue to seek out ways to cope with loneliness stemming from the pandemic. 
This year, Simply Be will host our second annual Walk and Ice Cream Social, free and open to all families. We are collecting donations for Lake County Veterans and Family Services Foundation. Learn more at simplybecounseling.net slash MHAD. Whether you're taking action for yourself or a loved one or advocating for a systematic change, your efforts are appreciated. Join us in taking action this month. Thank you for listening to season three. Make sure you never miss an episode by hitting the subscribe button and consider leaving me a review. And for more information, all things podcast, you can connect with us on Instagram at well, not perfect. See you next week. Bye.